Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Well, we all know what week this is. Turkey Day week, right? A day or two more that we don't have to stupid go into stupid work. Cowboys and the Lions will each play football, I, I think. Um, I'm not really sure. NFL is dead to me. A huge parade and a godforsaken land and probably something about a colonizer, something, something racist, something hate. I don't know. Now, I call it Thanksgiving Day, the one day every year that we're required to be thankful for something to someone, right? No idea what we should be thankful for or to who we should be thankful to. Uh, If only there was a way to know. Now, well, as luck would have it, the internet exists, and everything on there is well-vetted and completely correct and totally trustworthy, so all I have to do is grab the first answer I find, boom, there it is. Now, we all know that's a lie, but a number of years ago, I did an entire series of Sunday school lessons outlining how this country was founded, how it ran, and how it promoted Christian principles. I don't know what we are now, but whatever this country is today, it used to be a Christian nation. Now, only time will tell if we'll be that again or not. Coming back to Thanksgiving, much like everything else, this too has been secularized, and the history of Thanksgiving has been twisted and trivialized. So what is the history of Thanksgiving? I'm glad you asked. See, after the start of the Protestant Reformation around 1530, the King of England, Henry VIII, decided that he didn't like the Catholic Church. This was mainly because he wanted to do whatever he wanted, and what he wanted was for the Pope to tell him it was okay to work his way through however many wives it took in order to get himself a male heir to take over when he died. Now, he ended up having five wives, two of which he divorced. He executed two, and one died after giving birth to his only son. Well, the Pope and the Catholic Church didn't agree with his marital practices and wouldn't allow him to divorce his wife. In addition, the King and Parliament started trying to take control of the religion in England and said that they could just make their own rules. Well, when they did that, the Pope excommunicated him from the Catholic Church. So King Henry VIII decided to create his own church that we know of today as the Church of England, of which he was the head. Rather than waste time building churches, he ended up taking control of a lot of the Catholic churches and the property, way easier. He had standard prayers and sermons written and mandated that all the priests prayed the same prayers, delivered the same sermons, at the same time, in the same way, on the same day. This is where we get to the separatists, or as we know them better, the pilgrims. By around 1600, it was illegal to believe anything except the Church of England, and it was illegal not to go to church on Sundays. The king, or in the case of the year 1600, the queen, appointed the bishops, made the book of prayers, and dictated how church was to be done. In 1603, King James I came into power, and within four days, a couple Puritan ministers came and asked him if they could tell him the problems they had with the Church of England. James surprisingly agreed, and shortly after, four ministers came and presented their issues to James and his council of over 50 Church of England preachers. Now, shockingly, the king, or the head of the Church of England, and the 50 Church of England preachers denied every request. 
except for one. One of the pastors asked the king to authorize the creation of a Bible that was correct with regard to the original texts. The Church of England pastors, they weren't really fond of the idea, but James loved it. Now, in the previous 45 years, there had been at least 150 different versions of the New Testament that had been created and floated around England. So James thought this was a great idea. Plus, he probably liked the idea of having his name on a Bible. Now, we aren't going to go into that, but this is where we get the King James Version of the Bible. And as we all know, this is the only version of the Bible the apostles used, and I think Paul had a signed copy. Now, at this point, we're going to take just a little side story from the pilgrims for a few minutes. The English, King James, and others wanted to establish permanent settlements in this new world. A couple attempts had been made, but nothing had been successful as of yet. In 1607, another attempt was to be made. This time, the London Company financed a trip to America for a bunch of men to establish a colony in the Virginia Territory. The London Company was a financing company started by King James with the purpose of establishing a colony in America. This settlement became known as the Jamestown Colony. From the very beginning, it was very clear that God played an important role in this new colony. The Jamestown Colony started with a charter. This is the first charter of Virginia, and the charter reads, quote, We greatly commending and graciously accepting of their desires for the furtherance of so noble a work, which may, by the providence of Almighty God, hereafter tend to the glory of His divine majesty in propagating of the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God, and may in time bring the infidels and savages living in those parts to human civility and to a settled and quiet government, do by these our letters patent, gracious accept of and agree to their humble and well-intended desires. All right, so what in the world did that just say? Well, first of all, that was one sentence. It was one sentence with 11 commas. It's impressive. It always impresses me. If you've been listening to any of my American Genesis segments, you'll know that apparently in the old, and that's spelled with an E, days, they had a period shortage, but commas apparently were in great oversupply. I mean, they were practically giving them away. Okay. What did that say? Well, this was basically saying that they wanted to settle this area with the goal of bringing the natives to a knowledge of Christianity. They had a desire to teach people that they assumed and correctly assumed didn't know anything about God or Christianity or how to be saved in order to bring them out of darkness. Now, typically what we know about the Jamestown colony is that it was about a hundred settlers at first. They weren't ready for the winters and the hardships they were going to face, and they nearly completely died out. We also hear that they had a lot of problems with the Native Americans, the Indians. But what won't be talked about that much is that they relied on their Christian faith during these times. In fact, church services started almost right away after they landed, pastored by their Reverend Robert Hunt. Their captain and leader, John Smith, said, quote, There the first seed for English Christianity on the American continent was sown. The Jamestown settlement went from 104 people to about 50 people in the first winter. They were nearly out of food, but Captain John Smith held true to the biblical principle, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. He felt that this was the only way a society could be successful, if everyone worked hard. Captain Smith also was able to create a good relationship with the neighboring Indian tribes, so good in fact that one of the survivors praised God, saying that the Indians, quote, brought such plenty of their fruits and provisions that no man wanted. The Indians brought so much food that everyone had plenty to eat. 
Now, John Smith left the colony, and by the time the next governor of Jamestown arrived, Lord de la War, in 1610, the colony was nearly done for. The first thing the governor did was to organize a worship service and issue a biblical call for personal sacrifice and enterprise. In 1614, a couple people you may have heard of got married in the Jamestown colony, John Rolfe and Pocahontas. Yeah, Pocahontas is actually more than just a Disney cartoon. She was a real person. John Rolfe wanted more than anything for Pocahontas to be a Christian. He wrote, quote, I will never cease until I have accomplished and brought to perfection so holy a work in which I will daily pray God to bless me to mine and her eternal happiness. A researcher and author, B.F. Morris, wrote in a book, quote, The Christian religion was the underlying basis and the pervading element of all social and civil institutions of the Virginia colony. Now, let's return to England, where we find a group of people that didn't agree with the Catholics, but they didn't want to follow the Church of England either, as they felt that that's not what the Bible told them to do with regard to worship. They wanted to be able to worship in a more simple way, like the early Christians. These people were called Puritans, later Separatists, and finally Pilgrims. By 1607, this group of people decided that they were tired of being harassed, and they were tired of living in fear of being arrested, and decided to get out of England. But it was against the law to leave England without permission, so they tried once to get out and go to Holland, but they were caught and arrested. A year later, they tried again, and they were successful. They were able to get out of England and land in Holland, not a very long trip, but at least it was away from a forced religion. Now, during the time there, William Brewster and another man wrote some religious books and sold them in England. They also wrote a religious pamphlet that was very critical of the King of England and published it in England. This, of course, did not make the king happy, and Brewster was sought to be arrested. Now, in Holland, the pilgrims had religious freedom, but there were other problems. A lot of the children decided they wanted to move on from this Puritan faith. Additionally, they had to learn how to speak Dutch, and they were afraid that another Dutch-Spanish war was going to break out soon, as the truce the two countries had was coming close to an end. They decided that the fear of losing their children and their religion, along with other pressures, was too much, and they decided to move on from Holland. So the pilgrims decided the best thing they could do would be to get to the colonies in the New World. The problem is that the pilgrims did not have enough money to make this trip on their own. They needed food, clothes, supplies, and a ship that could carry them. They wanted to establish a small farming village in the Virginia colony, somewhere very close to what is now New York. They found some investors that would finance their trip, but in return, all of the pilgrims had to work for the company for seven years sending all sorts of natural resources back across the ocean to England, like fish and timber, furs, etc. Everything the pilgrims had belonged to the company, the houses, the land, their animals, everything. Now, after seven years, the agreement was then to split everything 50-50 with the company, but this would allow the pilgrims to have the freedoms they were searching for. At first, two ships were to set sail for the New World, the Speedwell and the Mayflower. The ships started to leave in August of 1620, but they had to turn back twice in order to fix leaks in the Speedwell. Well, after the second time, they decided that the Speedwell was horribly named as the speed apparently was zero and the ship was not well at all. So they decided it would never make the treacherous crossing to America and they left it behind along with a good number of people. 
Then on September 6, 1620, the Mayflower left for the New World with 102 passengers, 40 of which were actually pilgrims, and a crew of 30 to 40 on board. They sailed for 66 days, making landfall on November 11, 1620. Now, unfortunately, they didn't land exactly where they were expecting, but they were close-ish. Now, they, they didn't land at Plymouth either, like we always think, Plymouth Rock. They didn't land there first. They actually landed at what is now named Provincetown in Massachusetts. Now, this is at the very tip of the curl at the end of Massachusetts. There's a large tower there to memorialize the Pilgrims' first landing. This land apparently proved to be too sandy. It was not good for growing food. So a few days later, they went across the bay and they landed at Plymouth Rock. Because of the winter weather and the rough seas, it took another month until December 16th, 1620, before the passengers could actually get out of the ship and settle in an area that a scouting party had found. With the nearly month and a half they were on the ship before they finally got underway, the two months of the voyage, and the month waiting to disembark, all of these people were on this pretty tiny boat for about four and a half months. Then to make it worse, even after they found land, it took several months of living on the ship and ferrying back and forth in order to get some shelters built on land for them to live in. Remember, they weren't coming into a land with hotels and fast food joints and Walmarts. There was nothing but wilderness. And it was winter in Massachusetts. This was maybe not the best timing, and it was not kind to the pilgrims. Now, before they got off the boat, it was decided upon and agreed that they needed some sort of rules and structure for this new colony. The men of the ship created, agreed to, and signed something called the Mayflower Compact. It was a very simple document stating how the government of their society would be run. General, let's see what that said. So the Mayflower Compact reads, quote, In the name of God, Amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign lord, King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one of another, covenant and combine ourselves together in a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time, as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience." In witness whereof, we have hereunder subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, in the year of the reign of our sovereign lord, King James of England, France, and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland, the 54th, Anno Domini, 1620. Now, after they signed the compact, they got off the little boat and settled in. The first winter wiped out a large chunk of pilgrims. Food and shelter were hard to come by. There were new illnesses. Now, they could have run back to England. I mean, it would have been easier, but they didn't. They wanted to be able to worship God freely. This was more than just exploring new land or some adventure. This was more than just making a statement. This was a quest to worship the God that they believed in and that they loved. Now, they had the freedom to worship as they believed the Bible directed them, directly from the individual to God. 
and that church was, as Pastor Robinson expressed it, even two or three, quote, gathered in the name of Christ by a covenant and made to walk in all the ways of God known unto them is a church. Sabbath services were held twice on Sunday. In addition, sermons were often given on Thursdays, and as occasion demanded, days of thanksgiving or days of fasting and humiliation were proclaimed. These latter were movable weekday holidays called in response to God's providence. Both were observed in a manner similar to the weekly Sabbath with morning and afternoon services. The approximate times were from 9 a.m. to noon and from 2 to 5 p.m. The pilgrims had good relations with the Indians of the region. The pilgrims did not come to take over the land and steal everything from them. Rather, they lived in harmony with the Indian tribes, and the pilgrims didn't force anyone to worship the way they did. They tried to educate and convert people, but they didn't force them. In the fall of 1621, the famous first Thanksgiving took place. This was to mark the first harvest that the pilgrims and colonists were able to bring in. There were about 50 colonists and 90 Indians that attended this feast, including their king, King Massasoit. Probably have that wrong. They were very thankful to God for the blessings he had given them, despite the very difficult times they had. They had a bumper crop of corn, but their peas didn't make it. No great loss on my part. Four of the colonists went out and shot enough fowl to last them for a week, and the Indians brought five deer to the feast. The feast of thanks lasted three days. At least by the pilgrims, all thanks was given to God for their lack of want. Although various days of thanks were called for and observed after the Indians and Pilgrims' Feast, the next largely notable occurrence or occurrences are attributed to George Washington, first as our commander-in-chief and then as our first president. So late in 1777, as the Revolutionary War raged on, the British wanted to cut the New England colonies off from the Mid-Atlantic colonies. After a first battle of Saratoga or Freeman's Farm, the British held the ground but had sustained substantial losses. The Continental forces were forced to cede the ground, but had very few losses, relatively speaking. A few weeks later, the British General Burgoyne, with the remaining troops he had, determined that he had only a few weeks of supplies left. Now, he was awaiting reinforcements that were, well, to never come. He finally decided he could wait no longer, drew up plans, and launched his attack. Now, for a time, Burgoyne's plan was working, and the Americans were losing, and then Brigadier General Benedict Arnold, before he became the infamous Benedict Arnold, rode in with a fresh brigade of men behind him. Burgoyne tried to retreat, but he was quickly surrounded and forced to surrender. This American victory almost single-handedly convinced the French that this American independence was for real, and they started to provide military assistance. This was considered then to be a very important victory, and today is considered to be one of the main turning points in the Revolution. General George Washington, to celebrate this victory, called for Thursday, December 18, 1777, to be set aside as a day of thanksgiving. Congress approved, and on November 1, 1777, they made an official proclamation. It reads as follows, quote, for as much as it is the indispensable duty of all men to adore the superintending providence of Almighty God, to acknowledge with gratitude their obligation to Him for benefits received and to implore such farther blessings as they stand in need of, and it having pleased Him in His abundant mercy not only to continue to us the innumerable bounties of His common providence— 
but also smile upon us in the prosecution of a just and necessary war for the defense and establishment of our unalienable rights and liberties, particularly in that he hath been pleased in so great a measure to prosper the means used for the support of our troops and to crown our arms with most signal success. It is therefore recommended to the legislative or executive powers of these United States to set apart Thursday, the 18th day of December next, for solemn thanksgiving and praise, that with one heart and one voice the good people may express the grateful feelings of their hearts and consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor, and that together with their sincere acknowledgments and offerings they may join the penitent confession of their manifold sins whereby they had forfeited every favor, and their humble and earnest supplication that it may please God, through the merits of Jesus Christ, mercifully to forgive and blot them out of remembrance, that it may please him graciously to afford his blessings on the governments of these states respectively, and prosper the public counsel of the whole, to inspire our commanders both by land and sea, and all under them, with that wisdom and fortitude which may render them fit instruments under the providence of Almighty God, to secure for these United States the greatest of all blessings, independence and peace." that it may please him to prosper the trade and manufactures of the people and the labor of the husbandmen, that our land may yield its increase, to take schools and seminaries of education so necessary for cultivating the principles of true liberty, virtue, and piety under his nurturing hand, and to prosper the means of religion for the promotion and enlargement of that kingdom which consisteth in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost." And it is further recommended that servile labor and such recreation as, though at other times innocent, may be unbecoming the purpose of this appointment, be omitted on so solemn an occasion. As I read this, I think, uh, how does this compare to our typical Thanksgiving today? You know, too much food, favorite chair naps, a gaudy parade in a wicked city. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. And a couple football games. Moving on. We come to 1789. The Revolutionary War has ended. The American colonies are now the United States of America, a free and independent country. General George Washington is now our first president, and upon recommendations from Congress, called yet again for a national day of thanksgiving and prayer in gratitude to God for the war's end. The day of thanksgiving was November 26, 1789. President Washington observed this day in part by attending church and then donating food and money to prisoners and debtors in New York City jails. The proclamation, made on October 3, 1789, reads as follows, quote, By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor, and whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, 
that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence which we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge, and in general, for all the great and various favors which he hath been pleased to confer upon us. And also that we may unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have shown kindness unto us, and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue and the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best given under my hand at the city of New York, the third day of October, in the year of our Lord, 1789. Now, do you get the feeling that Washington might be spinning in his grave like a lathe at this point in America's history? I mean, what we've done with what he and the founders and the men that fought for our freedom, it's frankly embarrassing. And yet, the blessings we have in this country are far and above those of anywhere else and at any time else and we should be giving thanks at a minimum to the same degree that was stated in this proclamation. But we move forward in time once more. Now in the mid-1800s, a woman by the name of Sarah Josepha Hale, at just under 40 years old in 1827, started championing the idea for a national Thanksgiving holiday. Then starting in 1846, she wrote letters to the presidents spanning James K. Polk, Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, and finally in 1863 to Abraham Lincoln. In her letter, she laid out her case that in various states at various times, days set aside for Thanksgiving had been proclaimed, that various state and military officials agreed a national day of thanks should be enacted, and that the people are more and more calling for a day to be set aside to allow them to focus on giving thanks. The letter was written on September 28, 1863. Five days later, on October 3, 1863, President Lincoln issued his proclamation. As I read this proclamation, keep in mind that this was right in the middle of the Civil War, only a few short months after the Battle of Gettysburg, considered to be at least one of the major turning points in the war. It reads, quote, A proclamation. The year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. 
to these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and to provoke their aggression, peace has been preserved with all nations. Orders have been maintained, and the laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict, while that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union. Needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements, and the mines as well of iron and coal as of the precious metals have yielded even more abundantly than heretofore. Population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege, and the battlefield and the country rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy." It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens, and I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also, with humble penitence, for our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation, and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. In testimony whereof I have hereunto set my hand, and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed, done at the city of Washington, this third day of October, in the year of our Lord, 1,863, and of the independence of the United States, the 88th. Now, I hope I'm not the only one that feels, I don't know, a sort of awe or reverence. We are so blessed to even have the words of our forefathers, those that endured unbelievable hardships and tragedies, calling out to us to be thankful to the one and only Almighty God in the good and the bad, understanding that we deserve nothing, making anything we've received a gracious gift, and further, that the blessings God has seen fit to bless this nation and us individually with are staggering. Now back to the current, secularized world for a moment. I've used a timeline of Thanksgiving found on History.com. They don't go into any detail on any of these, just a bullet point list and a brief paragraph or two. That's it. But that's all I wanted so I could get the dates right and then do the research myself. But on their list, after the Lincoln Proclamation, we then get 1876, the first Thanksgiving football game. 
1924, the first Macy's Parade, 1939, the moving of the date from the last Thursday of November to the fourth Thursday of November by FDR. And why did he do this? Well, simply because this would allow a full month of shopping days before Christmas. President Roosevelt was afraid that shortening the shopping days to only 24 would have a negative impact on the economy. <laughs> Hashtag Thanksgiving. Then in 1963, we have the first turkey pardon by JFK. Does it make anyone else sad that we've fallen so far? To give some perspective, Ronald Reagan's 1985 Thanksgiving proclamation read in part, and if you'd like to read the entire proclamation, you can see the link in the notes. Quote, Although the time and date of the first American Thanksgiving observance may be uncertain, there is no question but that this treasured custom derives from our Judeo-Christian heritage. Quote, unto thee, O God, do we give thanks, the psalmist sang, praising God not only for the, quote, wondrous works of his creation, but for loving guidance and deliverance from dangers. Now, he then goes on to mention the Jamestown settlement, then the first Thanksgiving at Plymouth Colony, then he mentions 1777 after the Battle of Saratoga, then 1789 by President Washington, then he mentions Ms. Sarah Josepha Hale and her persistence to establish a national annual day of thanks. All throughout these mentions, President Reagan pulled out quotes from these past proclamations, glorifying and thanking God. He then goes on, quote, it is in that spirit that I now invite all Americans to take part again in this beautiful tradition with its roots deep in our history and deeper still in our hearts. We manifest our gratitude to God for the many blessings he has showered upon our land and upon its people. In this season of Thanksgiving, we are grateful for our abundant harvest and the productivity of our industries, for the discoveries of our laboratories, for the researches of our scientists and scholars, for the achievements of our artists, musicians, writers, clergy, teachers, physicians, businessmen, engineers, public servants, farmers, mechanics, artisans, and workers of every sort whose honest toil of mind and body in a free land rewards them and their families and enriches our entire nation. Let us thank God for our families, friends, and neighbors, and for the joy of this very festival we celebrate in his name. Let every house of worship in the land and every home and every heart be filled with the spirit of gratitude and praise and love on this Thanksgiving day. Now, therefore, I, Ronald Reagan, President of the United States of America, in the spirit and tradition of the Pilgrims, the Continental Congress, and past presidents, do hereby proclaim Thursday, November 28th, 1985, as a day of national thanksgiving, I call upon every citizen of this great nation to gather together in homes and places of worship and offer prayers of praise and gratitude for the many blessings Almighty God has bestowed upon our beloved country. Now, Donald Trump, in 2020, he mentions the pilgrims, a little bit about God, and much about COVID, and Americans of every stripe, but finishes off similar to President Reagan with, quote, I encourage all Americans to gather in homes and places of worship to offer a prayer of thanks to God for our many blessings. Then we get to President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. in 2021. He started off with, quote, Thanksgiving provides us with a time to reflect on our many blessings from God, this nation, and each other. We are grateful for these blessings, even and especially during times of challenge. Now, he briefly mentions Washington, Lincoln, and the Pilgrims in that order, and then a laundry list of those that were affected by the COVID pandemic, like frontline workers, farmers, teachers, parents, healthcare professionals, scientists, troops, etc. He then says, quote, 
For the First Lady and me, Thanksgiving has always been a cherished time to enjoy annual traditions that have evolved into sacred rituals with our children and grandchildren, throwing the football, preparing family recipes, lighting candles, and setting the table. And he finished it off in part with, quote, I encourage the people of the United States of America to join together and give thanks for the friends, neighbors, family members, and strangers who have supported each other over the past year in a reflection of goodwill and unity. Um, has anyone seen God? He seems to be missing. Is there like a milk carton or something that we can put his face on? And lest we leave out 2022, I found the esteemed governor of Michigan that somehow was elected to set office once again. Gretchen Whitmer, as she offered us this heart-rending proclamation, quote, Whereas Thanksgiving has been an important part of American tradition, originating too when the pilgrims and Wampanoags, probably said that wrong, feasted during the first Thanksgiving in October of 1621, and whereas modern Thanksgiving was first officially called for in all states by a presidential proclamation of Abraham Lincoln in 1863, and whereas, since then, it has become a beloved national holiday that is celebrated on the fourth Thursday of November every year, in which families, friends, neighbors, and even strangers gather to enjoy each other's company and reflect on what they are thankful for. And whereas, Thanksgiving is a valuable opportunity to appreciate our families, friends, and loved ones, and take time to remember everything we are grateful for. Now therefore I, Gretchen Whitmer, Governor of Michigan, to hereby proclaim November 24th, 2022, as Thanksgiving Day in Michigan, and wish all citizens a happy Thanksgiving, full of joy and love. And can you feel the love tonight? <sighs> so as we head into Thanksgiving, let me ask you, who do you more closely associate your Thanksgiving with? That of the Pilgrims, Washington, Lincoln, and even Reagan? Or that of Biden and Whitmer, and to some degree Trump? Who are you thankful to, and what are you thankful for? What does this day, this holiday, mean to you? I know that everyone has noticed that every store couldn't wait for Halloween to get out of the way so the Christmas merchandise could hit the shelves. And just like the stores, it seems like this year, the population in general is of the exact same mindset, more so than I remember seeing in the past, the desire to get to Christmas with Christmas carols, a tree, sparkling lights, and gifts is palpable. The longing for the feeling of Christmas is something I haven't seen en masse like this in the past. Is it to get to the celebration of Jesus, the birth of our Savior, or is it to get to the feeling? I'd argue that for most, it's the latter, much more so than the former. And in the process, Thanksgiving Day has been relegated to an afterthought almost. It's, it's a day off, maybe two. It's turkey, fixin's pie, parade, football, and for most, family. But in all of this, have we lost the actual giving of thanks? And as always, as I pepper you with these questions, I torment myself with the same, as I'm no different than anyone else. So in a couple days, we have the opportunity to bring back, if only individually or maybe around our table, the true intent of Thanksgiving. I implore you, as I point to myself, let's be people of thanks. Let's not just remember God on this day set aside specifically. Let's put God at the center, remembering that, as President Lincoln stated, as President Washington stated, we deserve nothing because of our sinful disobedience and rebellion against God. 
But look around at all the blessings that God has seen fit to bless us with regardless. And then remember, the greatest blessing of all, the sacrifice of his son for the salvation of his children. So with that, I wish you all a very happy and a very thankful Thanksgiving. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.